great to see all of you this morning. Uh, if you weren't able to join us last week, we took a break from the book of Ephesians and did a special message about Christian baptism, and we celebrated the baptism of three different members of the church, and so that was a beautiful, wonderful day. Five, actually. Five members of the church um, last week, so that was a wonderful celebration and sort of a reminder of the heart of Christianity which is Christ himself and his saving activity in the world. And everything else in life is actually built on that reality. There's a lot of things about life that come along later. There's a lot of ups and downs in the Christian life, just like any other relationship. But sometimes we can forget what is of first importance. And that is the gospel message itself about what God is doing to save sinners from their sins. I know I was reminded of this uh, one time. It was a great experience. I was interning in Cardiff, Wales in the United Kingdom, and kind of sometimes in the church world you can get sectarian, um, where you kind of believe your church is the only like right church and everybody else is, you know, kind of off or wrong or maybe they're not even Christian or whatever, and that was kind of the vibe. I mean, some people would do this more than others, but that, I, I kind of had that attitude, to be honest with you. If you're not from our tribe, our little little group, everyone else is, you know, not quite there. Well, in, in Cardiff, in, in Wales, in the UK, Christianity is sort of a dying religion. Not that many people go to church. It's like 80-something percent of, of Britons on a given Sunday will not be at church. Um, mosques and other religions are growing much faster, and among Anglos in the UK, atheism is growing far faster than Christianity. So the problem over there was nobody goes to church. It wasn't like Southern California, where even heathens will go to church, because it's a part of the Southern California culture. You just go. Um, but in the UK, hardly anyone goes, and so I was invited to be a part of an um, interdenominational prayer meeting, and I don't know that I'd ever been to one before in my life, to be honest with you. And so we went up on a mountain that overlooked the city of Cardiff, the capital of Wales, and we were organized into groups. And so I was sat down in a circle with a Presbyterian, a Methodist, a Baptist, a Pentecostal, uh, an Anglican and a Catholic. And this sounds like a joke, right? Like the guy walks into a bar. But so I'm sitting in this circle and my first thought is, wow, I can argue with you about baptism, you about soteriology, you about the doctrine of the church, you about uh, the gifts of the spirit and whether they're for today. You know, and, and I'm just thinking like, can we even get along? Like, look at all the differences. And I was absolutely amazed at what happened next. We each took turns praying, and everyone prayed the same thing. We prayed for God to pour out his spirit on this great city, because if he doesn't save sinners from their sins, none of our differences make any difference anyway. If you think about it, all of our differences were after the fact. You don't, it doesn't matter arguing about baptism if nobody wants to be baptized, right? Whether you sprinkle, you do it when you're an infant, you do it when you're older, you do it for this reason, you do it for that. Uh, you know, how, how many elders should you have? And what is their relationship to deacons? And, you know, how do you organize a church? And should one church be over many churches? Or should each church be independent? Those are all things that only matter after you're a Christian and not before. And so for me, it was just a great reminder of what is of first importance. And that's the gospel, the good news about what God is doing to save sinners from their sins. And that we're meant to build our lives on that. But I think it's, it's ironic because sometimes new believers get this better than longtime believers. 
Because a new believer has just experienced that very truth for themselves for the first time. And it's sort of like a, a, a new marriage or a new job or new car. There can be like that honeymoon stage, we call it, right? It's, it's all new. It's shiny. It's great. It feels this way. And then things change, right? Then maybe they get bad, but maybe they don't get bad, but they just change. And some of the emotions and the feelings and kind of the, the high, the emotional high that you had, that kind of subsides. And, and you kind of start moving on to other things. You start prioritizing maybe things related to the gospel, but it's not the gospel anymore. So I think it's so important that we come back to the heart of Christianity, which is what God is doing in the world to save sinners, including you and I that we are still every bit as much in need of a Savior today as when we first believed. And I, I hope that the Lord will restore that love for him, that love, that cherishing of God's mercy, of God's grace, of, you know, sometimes in life, I don't know if you, you ever work really hard to do something and you're just not seeing the fruit of it, and you're like, I'm not getting what I deserve. But when you think about God, like, I don't want what I deserve. I don't want what I deserve when it comes to God. I want grace. I want grace, and I want us to be in a place once again, and maybe I'm just preaching to myself here, but I want us all to be in that place where I, I want God's grace. I, I want to stop kicking and screaming about what I think I deserve and what I've done and the hard work and this and that and the other, and this person didn't do this, and what, you know, this should have gone this way. It's like... I want to get back to just where I want the grace of God, and that's it. Amen? I want to get back to the grace of God. And so this morning we're going to continue our study of the book of Ephesians, which is a book full of the grace of God, just packed full of the grace of God that leads us not only to Christ for the first time, but it leads us to him again as we go on this crazy journey we call life. And so if you would, open up your Bibles to Ephesians 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13 this morning. I'm going to have the passage on the screen behind me. And if you would, please follow along with me now as I read the Word of God. This is God's Word. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, 
which is your glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning, and I just pray you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us. Lord, I would, have, I would just pray for mercy on us. Lord, if, if we've sinned in any way against you, if, if any of us have been living in a lifestyle of sin, maybe it's obvious to some people, maybe it's hidden attitudes of the heart, I pray there be mercy, I pray there be forgiveness this morning, that we would experience and welcome that mercy in our lives. I also pray for grace. I pray for the unmerited favor and riches of Christ that we could never deserve to be poured out on us. Lord, I pray if there's any circumstances or situations that our brothers and sisters are facing today and and the time has come for those situations to change and it's time for those situations to end. Lord, I pray you would bring them to an end. I pray a new season would begin and that it would begin on the foundation of Christ and his gospel. Lord, for those of us that are called in the trial to be faithful witnesses to you because what you're going to do in our lives is greater in the trial than it would be if we were out of the trial. Perhaps for us, Lord, we need greater grace this morning to remain in the circumstances no one would ask for and yet to do it in such a way that we manifest the joy of the Lord and bring healing and restoration and freedom to others. We pray in all things Christ would be exalted. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been a prisoner? And before you answer, and Joe tells us yes, I know that most of you would say no, but let me rephrase the question. Have you ever felt like a prisoner to your circumstances? I think most of us that would answer yes to the first, Joe, uh, <laughs> We would say no, but to the latter, we would probably say yes. I have at times in my life felt like a prisoner to my circumstances. For some of you, you have been a prisoner to health problems. And you have been led, as it were, by change from doctor appointment to doctor appointment, scan after scan, call after call. Others, you have been a prisoner financially. Your money situation has been such that you felt shackled. You could not move where you wanted to move, and you could not go where you wanted to go. Others still have felt like prisoners within close personal relationships. Maybe to a spouse, or a parent, or even a, an adult child, where the pain and dysfunction is such that your heart feels imprisoned. And you don't feel like you can be yourself no matter how every other area of your life is going. In each of these three cases, we can feel like this situation is simply wrong. Not just painful, not just inconvenient. We can actually sense that it is wrong. And that God should not be allowing it. And this felt sense that there can be no good reason... Why we would feel like such prisoners leads us to ask the all-too-familiar question, why me, God? 
When the Apostle Paul wrote this morning's text of Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, he was in such a circumstance. He is ironically proclaiming the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ, even as he listens to the clink of the metal chains around his wrists. He's in prison in Rome, and he's been there for perhaps between three and four years. This was not like a weekend in the slammer. Some of you know what that's like. He was in there for three to four years. Imagine the psychological, emotional warfare of being God's apostle, which means sent one, a sent one who can't move. Imagine Paul moving over in his mind all these things. Now imagine the psychological and emotional response of those supporting him, who look up to him as a leader. And they look at their leader and they go, man, you're, is that what leading is? You're in prison. And you're not like, you know, what success is to us, what fruitfulness to us. Doesn't really look like that. And so Paul's in this situation. His own converts and disciples like the Ephesians may be tempted to believe that this is somehow proof that perhaps Paul is in sin. Perhaps God simply isn't pleased with Paul. Perhaps his ministry is over. He's, he's on the shelf for unknown reasons. And worse still, Paul has enemies. And we know from other letters, Paul's enemies used his imprisonment as an occasion to insult and belittle him. They would say, what, what's your apostle now? How great is Paul now? We already insulted him as not being a very good public speaker. His words are little. He writes powerfully. We admit that. But when he, his physical presence, when he's talking, he's not much to look at. Paul even admits he's not trained as a speaker. He's not a great speaker. But Paul maintains that ultimately the power of the gospel does not depend on human words or wisdom or talent or skill or gifting, but is solely dependent on God who raises the dead. And so this morning as we look at this passage, we can ask us, we can ask ourselves, how should we respond when we feel like a prisoner to our circumstances? And there's three things I think we should keep in mind when we feel like prisoners to our circumstances. Number one, if you are a Christian, then you are not a prisoner of any circumstance, but a prisoner of Christ. Look at verse one. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Now, again, in, in devotional reading, if I were sitting here, I don't know that I would have stopped and meditated on this line, but... Did you notice how audacious his claim is right there? So he's shackled, like real shackles, not metaphorical, not spiritual. They're physical. He's physically shackled. And who did that? The Roman government, right? So by all accounts, he's a prisoner of, what should it say? Rome. You're a prisoner of Rome. But that is not how Paul sees his circumstances. Paul does not look at his physical circumstances with merely physical observation, physical eyes. He also sees with eyes of faith. And the eyes of faith do not simply look at what is seen, but at what is unseen. This is what faith does. Faith does not ignore 
physical, temporal realities. Some people define faith that way. I think that's unfortunate. I don't think that's real faith. But faith looks at what is and looks beyond them. Faith seeks meaning not in the things that are seen, but ultimately in what is beyond. Paul has a heavenly perspective. And I don't think this is a small thing. If you want to know how Paul can write Ephesians about the riches of God, how he can write Philippians about the joy of the Lord while he's in prison. And man, is that a life skill, right? To feel rich and full of joy when you are in a prison. Now that might, on the surface, it's like we all might be like, uh, you know, I, I, like, I don't even want to think that if I follow Jesus, I could end up in a prison. Right? I mean, and you might want to go to a church where the pastor won't tell you that you could end up in a prison of some sort. Because we just, you know what I mean? It kind of, as the skaters in my town used to say, it harshes my mellow. You know, like, I just, I I, I don't want to think about these things. It's like, it's messing with with my my deal. I I don't want to deal with that. But I found that no matter what I do to avoid trials and tribulations, they find me. I can dodge some here and there. I cannot create them for myself, which I think I've gotten better at doing. But sometimes no matter what I do, and I know it's not my fault, these situations can find me. And so more and more over the years, as I've, I've experienced not just trials, but trials I have no say in. They've just been given to me. They've been allotted to me for whatever reason. I've come to appreciate Paul's ability to navigate such circumstances with joy and blessedness. And so the question today is not how do we you know, get out of it per se, anybody would want that, but what can we do if we're in it? What can we do if there isn't a way out? What, what can we do if God's not calling you out of it? I mean, sometimes the truth is we just want out of responsibility. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, gosh, I say this to my kids, and the truth is I could probably get a mirror out half the time. You know, you need to take responsibility, you know, and it's like, and I'm thinking about the same thing. It's like, so I just, I don't want to have to be responsible for this. It's too much. It's, I can't handle it. So for Paul, he has a heavenly perspective. Too often we begin from below and we let these thoughts dominate our lives. Well, this is my circumstance, and this, this, this is what it means. I mean, you know, uh, I, I, I take the interpretation everybody else would have. This is a sign that you're not blessed. You must be in sin. Something's going wrong. Um, God doesn't really love you anymore. It's their fault. It's this person's fault. That's just the normal earthly way to begin. And Paul could have quite easily done the same thing. I'm a prisoner of Rome. Rome did it. I hate Rome down with Rome. But he says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. For Paul, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is not an abstract concept to be argued about in a classroom of philosophy where people go, well, how can there be sovereignty and free will and and how do we define free will and how does that work out? It's like, for Paul, it is a way of life. The sovereignty of God is actually an interpretational framework through which Paul applies to his life. Paul doesn't look at the chains, his situation, and say, I'm a prisoner to this. This is sovereign over me. 
It will tell me who I'm going to be and where I'm going to go and what I'm going to do. I think we normally believe things like that. Paul says, no, I am a prisoner of one, and it is not these chains. I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And I think like Paul, because he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, but he's not Jesus Christ. He's a human being. He's just an ordinary, he's not just an ordinary human being. He was a sinner as well. So he's very much like us with Jesus. He was fully human, absolutely. He's also fully God. Paul was not fully God. He was just a man, a sinner who needed saving of a Savior. And he was able to live his life in such a way that he was not a prisoner of his circumstances. And I believe that we are to live the same way as Paul. When Paul views his physical imprisonment not as being sovereign over his life, you and I are invited to view our circumstances the same way. That we need to speak God's sovereignty to our circumstances and not allow our circumstances to act sovereignly over us. I'm not going to say to this diagnosis, I'm not going to say to my money situation, I'm not going to say to this relationship, you are sovereign over me. I'm going to say that Jesus Christ is sovereign over me and may the will of God in my life be done because that is what my life is about. Number two, your circumstantial imprisonment is the key to freedom for others. Let's look at verse one again, but I'm going to add the the last part and it's underlined. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. The entire body of this section, verses 2 through 12, is basically a summing up of how the Gentiles have been set free from their imprisonment to sin and their hopelessness as a people solely thanks to the gospel of Jesus the Messiah. So he's actually taking chapter 2, if, you, if you've been with us, Paul was talking about the Ephesians' condition in the world before Christ. In the first half of the chapter, he talks about their situation individually facing God. That they were dead in their trespasses and sins without, without any sort of forgiveness, no Savior in the world. And Jesus changed that condition. The second half of the chapter, he says, not just individually were you lost, but as a group you were lost. As a community, you were a hopeless community. You were cut off from the people of God. And Jesus Christ has changed that as well. Because what God is doing is he's reconciling promises in the Old Testament. Promises to restore Israel on the one hand, but also in the prophetic literature more and more, these promises that God's going to bring the Gentiles in somehow. But it doesn't say how. They're they're all going to come and they're all going to worship. But how in the world is that going to happen? The New Testament gives the answer. It's Jesus Christ. Not only is God able to restore Israel, but he's also bringing the Gentiles in. And here's what Paul says is unique in chapter 3. Notice what he says in verse 5. Which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. How as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Verse 6. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So God's answer to these two things that were related, but they, they weren't explicitly explained as belonging to one answer, have been answered in Jesus Christ. That Jews and Gentiles, there is no separation between them anymore. And of course, the temple system 
did just that. It made distinctions between people. At the center, this is where me as a teacher, I, I want my blackboard, but at, at the center of the temple, you had the most holy place. And who could go there? Only one high priest once a year. And then you had the court of the priest. The priest could be there, but no other Israelite male. Then you had an outer ring around that, and then that's where the Israelite men could go, but no Israelite women could go there. Then you had a ring around that, and the Israelite women could go there, but no Gentiles. And then you had the court of the Gentiles. And what God has done is those walls have all come down, and God is bringing everyone into the holy place in Jesus. That's the audacity of what Paul is saying. And that is why there were riots wherever he went. So he's summing up all of that, but there is one major difference to what Paul is saying here in chapter 3 and what he said in chapter 2. In chapter 2, he summed up all these blessings, but he did not say how the Ephesians were able to receive them. And that's the question. How did the Ephesians come to receive this glorious gospel? Did this glorious gospel fall out of the sky? Did it appear out of thin air? Did they just wake up on a Sunday morning and instead of turning on the TV, just had an epiphany about the gospel? God's going to send his one and only son into the world and he's going to save sinners from their sins. But not only is he going to do that, he's going to reconcile previously irreconcilable differences between groups and he'll do it together. One people. I mean, is that how it happened? No. Paul. Paul is the reason the Ephesians came to know the good news about Jesus. He left himself out of verse 2 because the gospel is not about me. But it includes me. Paul is the messenger by which the message was received. And though that message of the gospel came free of charge, it came at great cost to the one who ministered it. That's something we have to recognize about the gospel. The gospel is free, but it does not come without cost. Paul is paying the price for the freedom of the Ephesians. This is why he says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you. Paul's circumstances, Paul's chains, are so that others can be free. And I think God gives us trials, these circumstantial prisons, whether it's a health situation, financial situation, personal relationships, so that God can work in those in order to set other people free. Too many times we think of our situation only with respect to us and my life and what I think is good for me. But as many of us know, that sometimes the only people we'll listen to about a trial are the people who've been there. If you've ever lost a child, I mean, it's, I'm sure you can get some good counseling. You know, somebody who knows the Bible, who's, who's, you know, studied grief and trauma and that kind of thing, they could probably help you a little bit. But what if they've never experienced it? What if you're in that appointment, they're listening to you, and it's not that this person doesn't care, you, you hope they do, but they cannot empathize with you. They, they have no idea what it feels like to lose a child, or to talk to somebody about divorce who's never been divorced. 
or to talk to somebody about going to prison who's never been to prison, or to talk to somebody about being in war who's never been to war. One of the main ways God brings freedom and healing to other people is through the suffering of his people. But how often in our trials do we think that way? That what I'm going through, as much as I hate it, may be for the benefit of of those that I'm serving. That I'm going through this, I'm losing my freedom, so that other people can be set free. But if you're like me, sometimes you don't want to pay the cost anymore. You feel like you're broke. Or the cost is too high. This ailment, this debt, this painful relationship, it's just too much. And even as believers, longtime believers, we can say, I'd rather be free of this circumstance than be a prisoner of Christ who sets others free. I I just want to save myself. I don't want to lose my life so that others can find it. I just don't want to do it anymore. And this is where Paul's words amaze me. Paul does not say he is a prisoner for Christ for you Gentiles as a complaint, but as a compliment. Because Paul believes in a Savior who suffered and died for him, he believes his sin was so bad it warranted death and hell, and yet he was set free because Christ surrendered his freedom. There was no way Paul was going to be able to experience this freedom if Christ did not first give up his. Do you see that? Christ surrendered everything. This is what the New Testament teaches. He voluntarily becomes human, giving up the dignity of heaven. Then he comes to earth, and you would think, well, he's already stooped low. He's God. He's getting involved in the world of, of men. He's, he's, that's pretty low. That's a finite, infinite step. That's huge. But you'd think, well, at least he could be born in a palace. Jesus was not born in a palace. He was born in a cave. That's where the manger was, a stable. It was in a cave, a cold, dark, dirty cave. I mean, most of us, when we want to have babies, and we had Cheryl from Arts for Africa sharing about how horrible the birth conditions were over in Uganda, and we would do whatever we could to make sure our sons and daughters aren't born in such circumstances, and she's doing whatever she can do to make sure people in Uganda don't give birth in such circumstances. And isn't it ironic that those are the kinds of circumstances the Lord Jesus was born into? Literally the kind of human circumstances none of us would ever wish for our kids. And we would probably say things like, this is wrong. God should not be allowing me to give birth in a place like this. Filthy and diseased, flies around. I mean, think of an actual stable for a minute. That is not where you want a baby with a baby infant immune system being born in the world. And that is where Jesus comes. If Jesus doesn't do this, though, Paul cannot be saved, and he knows that. And the story of the gospel doesn't stop there, because once Jesus saves people, they are supposed to become like him. And we are supposed to be like him precisely in this, that we are regularly, as a way of life, giving up our freedom so that others can be free. And I think that is probably one of the single greatest attacks on our selfishness and ego and pride we can possibly imagine because we don't want to live that way. 
Even most good acts of kindness and charity are still done out of some sense of, of pride and ego, and this makes me feel good, like a lot of people do good. And I'm not saying this is wrong. I'm, I'm glad it's wired into human beings so that even jerks can be good, right? They can do good things. It's wired in people to want to do good for us. It actually makes, oh, I'm going to give you a little money. You said you don't have any money. It actually makes them feel good. And on the outside, who cares what their motives are? But motives matter. But you just go, well, whatever. I'm just glad they're doing some good. But what happens when doing good is not in your self-interest? Where do you get the courage, the power, the fortitude, and the belief to do that? Why would you lay your life down? I was thinking about this. It's not like other people won't lay their lives down, but generally, you don't lay your life down for your enemy. You know, like I'm, I'm looking forward to watching um, They Shall Not Grow Old. It's a World War I documentary that the director of Lord of the Rings made, but I, I'm, I've always been fascinated by war because obviously it's a, a tremendous test of human nature and, and character and all this. And so you see kind of these things that we deal with in life every day. Life's a battle, but you see them pronounced right? Um, just in epic proportions. And so just this idea of battling these things and why, you know, some people are willing to die for their brothers in arms, right? You're in the trenches together and, you know, I'm willing to die to save my brother. But then there's a lot of people that are cowards. They're not willing to die even for their brothers. Like, forget you, you know, you go throw yourself on the grenade. I'm not doing it. But how, how many of those are actually willing to go over to the other side and die for their enemies? When you have a prisoner of war to say, hey, I'm going to trade places with you. I'm going to let you go free, but, but we can't just let you go free. The, the numbers have to be accounted for, so I'm going to take your place. I'm going to take your prisoner uniform. And I'm, I mean, how many people do that? You don't do that, but Paul believes that is what Christ did for him. And so his whole life is one of self-sacrifice. It's giving himself up. And this is how he's able to be joyful in his circumstances that feel like imprisonment, that are imprisonment. See, if it's all about Paul, I don't see how he has joy here. And I don't think anybody would. I don't think you would feel blessed in prison. I don't think you would have joy in prison. But if you see that my life is about reaching people and being in prison, I'm able to reach prisoners. Prisoners I would not be able to reach otherwise. And Paul actually says that in, in Philippians. He was chained to a centurion. And Paul's like, oh my gosh, when I was on the outside, I was hoping to somehow get this gospel all the way to the top, to Caesar, and, and he's arrested. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, Paul, you've blown it. You're out of the game. You're not going to make any difference anymore. He's like, this is the greatest opportunity I've had so far. I'm shackled to, to, to a centurion. I literally have an inroad now to Caesar's household. Do you see how Paul's looking at it? It's not a woe is me thing. It's, it's Christ. And how do I get this gospel out there? And so for Paul, it is the highest compliment to suffer on behalf of Christ. For him, suffering and imprisonment is not condemnation, but commendation. But even so, we might ask, why does Paul digress in verse 1? Why does he break off in verse 1 before he finally comes back to the prayer? Apparently, he intended to pray back in verse 1, but doesn't get to until verse 14. Uh, one of the things you notice when you read over this is 
uh, again, it seems awkward and weird, and sometimes it's hard to follow the flow. One of the things that, that can help you, even in your devotional reading, is to remember that many, if not all, of these letters were orally dictated. So sometimes you might have it imagine Paul sitting down, you know, like you're in college, and, no, oh, I got a paper's due tomorrow, and, and he's just typing it, sitting there typing it, and, oh, I'm going to delete that. That didn't logically flow from the thing before, and, oh, I went off on a tangent here. I need to pull that back in, and my, my main point needs to be in the first paragraph, and here's the order. That's not how Paul's doing this. He's probably standing up. He's shackled, but he's pacing, and he's talking. And he has a, a recorder, what they called an amanuensis, because that was the technology, that was the laptop of the ancient world. And so he's dictating, and you can kind of see when you're just talking extemporaneous speech, you can be like, hey, you know, what about this? Oh, by the way, over, and you, it's like, what? What was the logical connection to that? Paul intends to pray in verse 1. And we know this because he repeats the exact same Greek words translated in English for this reason. So he says, for this reason, in verse 1, and he comes back around and finally says it again in verse 14, and he begins his prayer. So the question is, why did Paul break off his prayer in verse 1 that he was going to pray, and for some reason feel he's not able to pray yet, because something needs to be explained. And then he sums up the story of the gospel in chapter 2, but he does so by including himself and his own ministry. Why did Paul do that. And that brings us to our third and final point, number three. We must battle in our circumstances against the temptation to lose heart. Look at verse 13. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, this is quite interesting because it appears that it is not Paul who is tempted to lose heart but rather the Ephesians themselves. Notice that. He asked them, it's a request, please don't lose heart over what I'm going through. And we might ask, well, how is this? What's the temptation? The answer is that the suffering of other believers prompts us to question both our theology and our commitment. So Paul, what's happening to Paul just like sometimes what happens to us, forces us to rethink what we believe. And not just to rethink what we believe, but how committed in our hearts we actually are. So to the Ephesians theology, the question is probably something like this. Is Paul's imprisonment a sign that he's in sin? That he's under God's curse? That he's been set aside, as it were? Or is his imprisonment a sign, ironically, of God's approval? Now, this idea of when we suffer, not theoretically, when you really suffer, you're in a tough situation that you don't want to be in. This is where we do theologically reflect, whether you use that word theology or not. You, are, you have ideas about God and the way things are and the way things ought to be and what shouldn't be and all that, and you are applying them to your life. And one of the common themes, and it, it seems to be ancient for many religions, is this idea of a, a, a mechanistic universe, reap what you sow principle, karma, others, other religions would call it, but this idea of, you know, kind of, you know, what you're seeing is, is kind of what was deserved. It's just coming around in circles. And you actually see this over and over in the Bible, where people are thinking, if bad things happen to you, 
What is that a sign of? God's disapproval. As a matter of fact, even in the covenant, the Mosaic covenant itself, there's a list of blessings and cursings. And God says, if you do this, then all these good things will happen to you. Your crops will grow. You'll have lots of kids. Your land will be free from marauders. If, on the other hand, you break all these rules, your, your land will experience famine, your walls will be breached, and you will not bear many children. So, and, and obviously, there's some truth to this idea, right? Where if you're doing good, some good things will happen. If you're doing bad, then some bad things. But there's some important books in the Bible that are there precisely to keep us from moving into such a mechanical view of the world. And one of the most important books in the Bible for this reason is the book of Job. The whole point of the book of Job is to explore the mystery of a righteous man's suffering. As a matter of fact, though Job's not privy to the story, unfortunately for him, the reader or hearer of Job is told right at the beginning, just to let you guys know, this whole story, which is 42 chapters, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be awful. It's some of the most atrocious, miserable, painful, unbearable suffering that a human being can go through. That's what you're going to see for 42 chapters. So here's something I need you to know before we get into all that pain and suffering. Your immediate thought most likely will be, he had it coming. And so the very beginning of Job is the words, Job was a righteous and upright man. No one was like him. The most upright man. If anyone deserved for life to go good, it wasn't you or me. It was this man. And he experiences all these horrible things. And his friends who have theology, they come alongside him and they're like, well, Job, obviously you sinned. Because if you were righteous, bad things don't happen. Bad things don't happen to good people. It just doesn't happen. So there's some secret sin. You're, you, you secretly curse God in your heart. Or, or, you know, it was this or that. Or, or, you know, you got greedy over this, Job. That's what you're doing. Or, or, or you, you were, maybe you were secretly offering sacrifices to a different God over here. And we know that's not the story. Fast forward to Jesus Christ. And this is what Christians are saying about Jesus. That he who was without sin was treated on the cross as the greatest of sinners. You can understand why many people, at least at the time, did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. The fact that he suffered and died on the cross, I mean, for goodness sakes, doesn't the Old Testament say that, you know, children, honor your father and mother, and if you do, your days will be long on the earth, the first commandment with promise? Doesn't it say that? Well, Jesus, I mean, if he honored his father and mother, why was his life cut off at 33 years old? I thought you said honor father and mother. Like Proverbs, you know, a righteous man, you know, lives in his integrity and his children are blessed after him. Jesus was cut off in the prime of his life, no children after him. What's going on here? The Ephesians were probably tempted to believe, because it's a very human thing to do, that because Paul is suffering, he must have done something wrong. And so Paul is writing this whole section, verses 1 through 13, is to not encourage his own heart. He's already encouraged by the gospel, even though in chains. He's writing to the Ephesians to make sure that they do not lose heart. 
that they understand that in the gospel, such suffering can ironically be the sign of God's approval. That God is using you to bear some of the pain and suffering in the world so that you can bring healing and peace and love and restoration and hope to someone else. The greatest people to help people with financial problems a lot of times are people who have been through financial problems and come out the other side. Someone who's been through horrible marriage problems and can relate to someone who's young and going through it and they've come out the other side. Someone who's experienced horrible physical conditions and, and they've learned to live with it with joy or, or received healing or whatever it was and they're able to share that with somebody else. But there's a second question in addition to the theology. And this is not just about theology, but commitment. We might have all been willing to follow Jesus when he took care of our guilt and proved some of our temporary conditions. But will you and I really now follow him in this particular prison? Our imprisonment is not just about freeing others, but also freeing ourselves from the idols we still cherish. If we find that we just cannot have any joy, because Paul is able to have it, if we find that we can't have any joy, then there's something probably in our lives that we're holding on to, where we're refusing to be joyful unless something changes. And so the Lord can use such things as an opportunity for us to expose, what is it I really hope in? What's my functional Savior? I, I know to say Jesus on Sunday, but on Monday, what's my functional Savior? Is it a paycheck? Is it digits on a screen? Is it, is it my spouse? Are they another sinner who needs, are they a Savior for me? Do I want them to make all my dreams come true? My children? Do I, do I bet my total core identity and value on what my children who are sinners choose to do with their lives and I'm a success or failure based on that or what the world's opinion of me is is that what we do I think when we're in these seasons God wants to free us as well as others from the idols we still cherish Paul's assertion here highlights the great irony of the gospel in our weakness, we are strong. These trials which outwardly no one would wish for are in Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 through 18. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So what circumstantial imprisonment might you be in this morning? Are you giving sovereignty to your circumstances or to God? In what ways can you use your circumstantial imprisonment to set others free who might be going through the same thing? Are you losing heart by staring at the waves or does your heart feel revived as you set your eyes on Jesus and walk, as it were, on the water? It is my prayer that the same spirit that worked in Paul 
to answer these questions. We'll answer them to the glory of God in and through our lives this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, and I confess that we need you. I know I, I can't do these things without you. I can't look at life that way. I can try. I might have victories here and there, but eventually I will face a situation which, which is far beyond my ability to handle. But I believe that through the Spirit of Christ, who is the promised inheritance of all believers, can enable us to be more than conquerors. That you can transform our minds so that we look at our situation that we're in right now and to see it as you see it, not as the world sees it. That you want to use us, that you want to use our experience, both our successes and our failures, to help set other people free. And that you expect us to be busy ministering to others in precisely those ways. And Lord, I also believe you want to set us free from those idols in our hearts that we still hold on to functionally instead of you. I just pray that you would enable us not to lose heart. I pray you would revive your people this morning, everyone, anyone who needs revival in their heart this morning. I just pray you would pour out that spirit, that grace into their hearts right now. And I pray for a time of blessing and experience of your presence now as we close in worship. In Jesus' name, amen.